Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some great guest co-hosts, as well as some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try to make some sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. Hello, and welcome to another Sunday bonus episode of The New Abnormal. And we thank you so much for being here. Today, we have two extra special guests. First, we're going to talk to Andy Campbell, who's a journalist at The Huffington Post and author of the amazing new book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. He's going to tell us all about his book, as well as what's going on with that wacky bunch of boys. But first, we have an extra special guest with Paul F. Tompkins, a comedian and actor who you, of course, know from his roles in Mr. Show, BoJack Horseman, There Will Be Blood. The guy does it all. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. This is sort of an inaugural attempt at doing this sort of segment. So I appreciate you being our, I was told not to say guinea pig, but I'm saying guinea pig. <laughs> Obviously, that's an insult to my Italian heritage, <laughs> but I, I'm used to it. But look, I, I love, Andy, I love inaugurations, so here I am. All right, so I need to start with this. This is generally a political podcast, so I want to touch on some on politics for a bit. You're in so many things that it would take up all the time we have for me to go ahead and list them all. And <laughs> but right. I may do that if this whole thing goes pear-shaped. I, I may have to resort <laughs> to that, but hopefully not. But before I get to the politics stuff, I have to bring this up. Somehow, I had no idea you're playing Gallagher in the Weird Al uh, biopic. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I forgot that there there would be an IMDb and you could look up yeah. who's who. But yeah, there's there's a party scene and I got to play Gallagher, and uh, it was it was what a wonderful day that was to be surrounded by a bunch of other funny people playing other weirdos. <laughs> it was a really wonderful day on set. That's absolutely amazing. But so you didn't get to like smash a watermelon or anything like that. You'll have to see the movie. Oh, okay, fair enough. You don't talk about politics much. I mean, I think that's fair to say, and I think it's possibly out of cowardice, but that is not for me to say. I mean, to be fair, I do rant a lot online. No, you do. You absolutely do rant a lot <laughs> online. And and in the past, you have described yourself as MAGA curious, and I never could figure out what that meant. <laughs> that's the thing. I can't figure out what it means either, and I keep hearing this phrase, and I feel like it leads back, and I, okay, I'll put my tinfoil hat on. I feel like it leads back to Trump. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Research that I've been doing, I feel like it's somehow that phrase has something to do with Donald Trump. I think it might, and I'm not entirely sure, because it's something I actually completely made up, and I'm kidding, of course, you are not MAGA <laughs> curious, you know, I- it's fair to say you are comfortably on the left and out there with your, you know, your Hollyweird cronies and your Bel Air mansions. Oh, absolutely. 
drink an adrenochrome. Absolutely. Exactly. Sort of what I meant is you're not like politics guy, and I'm making air quotes when I say that. And what I mean is like, it's not the core of what you do. It's not that you're not open about your beliefs. You are. None of that was a question. It was more of a confusing compound (laughs) sentence. I'm not Mark Ruffalo. That's what people need to know. Yes, exactly. Is it a (laughs) conscious choice for you to not be like a political comedian or it's just that you have no interest in that? But yeah, you're absolutely, you know, it's not like you're hiding your politics. It's just not like what you're into comedically. Honestly, the thing that keeps me from being a political comedian, I guess, because over the years, my interest in politics has has grown steadily because I, as I matured emotionally, I began to see uh, how much politics affects my fellow human beings in this great country of ours. The problem is making politics funny is extremely difficult. And if it's not your innate thing to begin with, to try to suddenly pivot to that, I think is kind of a fool's errand because it's just really hard. It's hard to not make the most obvious jokes. It's hard not to just be, you know, ranting for applause. It's hard to actually say something, like have a point about a political thing and be really funny at the same time is extremely hard. And very few people are, are able to actually do it. The, the, the time that I feel like it was the most successful where I, I remember like really laughing out loud at something political was the Colbert Report. And I wonder even now how much that would hold up if I were to watch it again. You know, as my as my politics have progressed, <laughs> you'll forgive the term, right? <laughs> to the left, would I find it as palatable today? But yeah, I, I would like to. I, I Like anytime I tweet something like a political joke, I regret it. <laughs> Almost instantly. I'm like, nah, that was corny. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you just get mad at shit and and you just can't help yourself and your thumbs are moving before you're even aware that that's happening. Yeah, I have to say when you said the you know the one thing that you really liked the political comedy thing was the Colbert report, I was I was kind of hoping you were going to say my tweets, but <laughs> obviously you look, you went another way and that's and that's fine. We'll still we'll continue with the interview anyway. I didn't want to embarrass you. No, I appreciate that and I think I think it's clear that that's the only reason you didn't say that that's because exactly you knew it right. would make me uncomfortable. Because like a lot of people, I don't like to be called a hero. It makes me squirm and so I I just prefer to keep a low profile. See, I love it. I wish more people would call me a hero. Really? Yeah. I it makes me feel good. That's really interesting. I'm an interesting guy, Andy. You are an interesting guy and Thank you. See, love hearing that. And in many ways, I would say you are heroic. <laughs> Well, now you've fallen into my trap. I got you to say it. <laughs> you did. You got me to say it. And <laughs> suddenly your mic goes dead and you are, you are gone. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> you talked about ranting for applause. And yeah, there really is. Like, there's nothing worse than, I think it was Seth Meyers who coined the term clapter. And it, it's just, and you see it so much these days. It's one of those things that I do see on both the right and the left, where it, it's just, it's purportedly telling a joke, but the point is not to get the laugh. It's, well, as you would expect from the name Clapter, it's to get the applause. And look, it's very tempting. What's more validating than saying something and have a bunch of people applaud, you know? Right. Like, of course, it's, it's, it's very alluring to get up there and feel like you have something worth saying to begin with, which is the delusion of all stand-up comedians. <laughs> That's how you end up being 
successful. And that's what keeps you doing it is that you have this weird belief that no people need to hear what I have to say. <laughs> right. And then to, to add that into it, when you start feeling a certain way about things, you're passionate about something. And I, cause I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's like, I don't think anybody starts out thinking, I want to get people to applaud for me. I think by and large, they come from a place of this matters to me. This is important to me. This is the way I see things. I'm going to, I'm going to express it this way. And when people applaud, it's very validating. And it feels like I am right. I was on the right track here. I was right to do this because look, people agree with me, but it's just not funny. Obviously the problem arises when it sort of takes the place of the funny. Yes. It's fine to say something that's legitimately funny or clever or smart and get applause for it because of that. But it's when you start, you know, it, it, it's sort of a descent. I don't think anyone starts out looking for a clapter, really. Yeah, I agree. I think, like you said, it becomes like, it's almost like a drug. Like you get applause a couple of times for legitimately funny things. And then the applause part becomes more important than saying the legitimately funny thing. Yeah. And you don't really realize that it's happening. In your mind, right. you've, you've just made a transition of going from one type of topic to another, and this is what your material is now, but it ends up being, it ends up meaning like the bare minimum for comedy, but really is 99% a speech. Yeah. And I remember a lot of people saying when, you know, when Trump first got elected, it was like, oh, this is going to be great for comedy. Oh. And I just remember thinking, will it? Yeah. And I'm not sure, like there are obviously some very funny people that came out of the, of the Trump era for political jokes, but there's so much more of it. That's just so tedious. For sure. The way that the beginning of the Trump era, well, and we're still in it, but when it started right. and how silly it all was and where we are now, where it's so demoralizing, it's so demoralizing, right. <laughs> you know, it's not that he is the worst guy that's ever been in that office. It's not that he's done the worst things that any president has ever done. It's that he's such a fucking asshole and was <laughs> and loved talking and hearing him talk was so demoralizing. It was such a drag <laughs> that, you know, it's it just it it stopped being funny real fast. Yeah, no, totally agree. And along those lines, so you actually did just recently, I think in the last couple of months, you did some stuff for the Los Angeles DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Yeah. Is that something, are you going to, do you see yourself doing like more of that and getting into stuff like that? Or, or is it something you've been doing for a long time and I just happened to notice that you did it recently? I've done a, a couple benefits for them. Been, I should say, been a part of a couple benefits for them for candidates. I really enjoyed it. It was astonishing how much fun and how good it felt to be a part of that, like to be back stage with other people and we were all there for the same reason and really believing in what we were doing was really enjoyable and um i definitely want to do more of that stuff i joined the dsa uh, I'm, I'm literally a card carrying member i do want to get more involved and you know because I, I do feel like it starts it starts locally and la being such a huge city it's a an interesting microcosm of national politics and how important it is to be involved at your at your local level. And yeah, I want to. I, I I know I don't know what I'll find and I don't know how I'll feel about it, but I do want to get more involved. Is there a chance that Los Angeles will sort of break the streak of our nation's biggest cities—New York, Chicago, LA—having just the crappiest mayors? Man, I I hope so. I was delighted that. Rick Caruso tried to outright buy the mayoralty right. and it didn't work. That was fun. That was a fun day when he didn't just get enough votes to take it in the primary and spent all that money. 
was great. I mean, it doesn't, it's not like he feels it personally, but still, it was nice to know yeah. that he couldn't do it. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But man, oh man, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it would be nice. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so fucking annoying how all these big, Powerful cities just keep electing these just the worst people. I mean, it hasn't stopped here in New York. We have Eric Adams, who is god awful. And, you know, I'm obviously really hoping that Caruso doesn't win in the general. So, yeah, it would just be nice to break that streak. Shifting gears a little bit. This is something we hear a lot these Wait, okay. wait, wait, wait. Do you play the, do you play the, the gear shift uh, sound effect? No, we don't. We're not a morning zoo. You don't. Oh. Yeah. No, I left. I was misinformed. I, I, I apologize. Left, no, I left the morning zoo. When? God. 2019, I think. It's been a while. Eddie, they're still playing clips of you. Are they really? I thought you were still on the show. Yes, no. they're still playing clips of you. They have chopped up your old audio to make it seem like you're still in studio with the gang. I have to get my lawyers to look at this because that's... No, I left them. I don't speak to the gang anymore. Oh, my God. Well, they speak to you. They speak to oh. recordings of you. Frida, the Mole Man, they're all talking to you. Oh, all right. So I am going to switch gears here uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for uh, quickly. So we hear a lot these days from conservative actors, writers, people out in Hollywood or in the entertainment business in general, how they can't get work in the biz because of, the, <laughs> of their politics. When you hear that, like, what is it that you think? How, how tiresome is it? Or is there some truth to it? I don't think there's any truth to it because basically, if you're a nice person, everyone wants to work with you, right? Right. And you can even be an asshole as long as you are considered some kind of genius or some kind of undeniable box office star. But Kevin Sorbo was already done. Right. And it had nothing to do with his politics. James Woods, I don't think is the nicest guy in the world. And I think that time wore on. And there's plenty of people in Hollywood who aren't working at James Woods's age who are Democrats. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> who right. used to work as much as he did and don't anymore. And it's not because of their politics. It's because that's Hollywood, baby. It's such a lie. It's such a lie. And these guys love to be victims so much, but they should know better because that's the nature of this business. But there is, there is a hard thing when you are successful for a while, um, you know, at the level that these guys were, if you're Kevin Sorbo, you're the lead of a show that was very successful. And then that ends. And then people are like, well, this guy's actually not that great as an actor. Right. You know what I mean? There's not a, there's not a ton of, he's not a chameleon, you know what I mean? Right. So, you know, the people moved on and, you know, uh, although Hercules was a, a successful show, it ran for many years in syndication. It was a sort of niche kind of thing. And it's not, I don't think he ever crossed over into the mainstream in that way, you know, yeah. as, as other people have done. And, and it's like the parts that I don't get, I absolutely blame anything I can, except me. <laughs> right. But I'm sorry to say it has nothing to do with politics. Mel Gibson is working again. You know what I mean? I always <laughs> bring that up. It's like every time I look, Mel Gibson's in another movie. And he actually is not just like, oh, he's got some bad politics. He did really shitty stuff. <laughs> he said some of the most yeah. horrific things that we all heard. Yeah. And he had to go to sit in a corner for a few years. Right. And then he's back. And it's like, not only is he back, it's like nothing ever happened. Yeah. And look, he's a super talented guy. And I, you know, I, sadly, I enjoy a lot of his films, but, mm -hmm. but there's no doubt that if you were going to like blackball someone, <laughs> you know, strictly for their views, and for the things that they've said, it would be him. Yeah, if you were going to blackball someone and feel 
extremely confident that you had a case, <laughs> right? <laughs> it would be Mel Gibson. But yeah, these other guys, it's it's just that's just the way it goes. It also sort of strikes me, and it struck me as you were talking about him. But like someone like Kevin Sorbo might actually be learning what it's like to be a woman in Hollywood, where <laughs> when he was young <laughs> and a pinup guy, yeah. Uh, he was getting work and now he's older and it's not that he looks bad for his age or anything. He absolutely doesn't. He looks great, but he ain't in his twenties. He ain't in his thirties. And what do you know? It's getting harder for him to find work. Just like mm, you might say it is in general for women out there. In Hollywood, ageism is ageism. And if you can't become a character actor, then you're done. Right. <laughs> right. Hollywood has no, once you stop being pretty, Hollywood has no use for you. Right. Especially if you, if you can, if you're not like the strongest actor, let's say. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Along those lines, have you seen uh, my son Hunter yet? <laughs> I just I want to point out to our I audience seen that it yet. you laughed at me when I told you I was watching it. Yes. I tweeted something like vaguely mysterious, like I'm watching what I think might be the worst movie I've ever seen, and you yeah. you DM'd me on Twitter saying I had to know. You had to know, and I told you, and your response was just like an all caps ah ha 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 ha. I forgot that that thing existed. <laughs> It caught me by surprise. I was thinking it was going to be like a typical Hollywood release, but uh, the fact is my son Hunter, I believe you said it's not worth watching, right? It's not. We all know there are movies that are so bad they're enjoyable to watch. Yeah. This was not one of them. Or things that are just like a, a kind of a curiosity. And you're saying it doesn't even approach that level. It doesn't. There's like a couple of times where you think it might be going in that direction and you get <laughs> excited. And like yeah. there's some sort of weird little <laughs> fantasy scene where, uh, what's her name, Gina Carano? Yes, beep boop Yes, she's a Secret <laughs> Service agent. And there's like some little fantasy scene where the actor playing Joe Biden has like his arms around her and is sniffing her hair. And it's like a little gauzy and like it could have gotten in like a very Twin Peaksy direction, uh, yeah. but it didn't. It didn't. Oh. And mostly it's just, honestly, it, it was a lot of really boring speech making and a lot of putting uh, weird graphics on the screen. Adam McKay has a lot to answer for for this movie because it's obviously <laughs> it's not his fault, but they ripped off his, you know, latter day filmmaking style. Um, but without this, without any of the skill. Are people talking to the camera? Yes. Oh, Gina Carano oh. talks to the camera all the time. Oh. Yeah, she sort of narrates you through the film in a lot of ways. She's the Jiminy Cricket of <laughs> exactly. My Son Hunter. Yes. Yes, exactly. No, it's a painful movie and don't watch it. I was just curious <laughs> if you had. I want to talk about you uh, and all the stuff you do. You do... It's it's insane. You do stand-up, you do live variety shows, you did the Thrilling Adventure Hour, which was this amazing thing that was like old-timey radio plays. <laughs> You're the voice for, I did an accurate count, and it's a bazillion animated characters. <laughs> and you do, you know, live-action acting, you write, and my question to you is, Why? Can't you just be chill? Uh, man. Do you know how many jobs you're taking away from people? I understand, but nobody understands how big the hole inside me is, Andy. And <laughs> they refuse to believe me when I tell them that uh, it is terrifying. I've looked inside it many times. It's looked back at me, which is unpleasant. And this is what I got to do. It's just what I got to do, baby. See, now you fell into my trap. I wanted you to admit you had a giant <laughs> hole inside you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it really is amazing all the things you do and and like they're and they're oh, all good. That's what's so annoying. Like every time you do something, I'm like, <laughs> all right, finally he's gonna suck at this and I'll feel a little better about myself. <laughs> and then no, you just 
great at it. That is very flattering, and I appreciate that. And I do have to say that I am extremely lucky that I have gotten to do a lot of really fun things. And I, I whenever I'm I'm bummed out about you know, not getting a job or not getting to do uh, certain things. I have to remember that even stuff that uh, that most people don't see, I get to do a show at UCB or whatever and have a great time. And, you know, that's why I started doing it when I was younger. And that was the goal was to have a job where I get to have fun and, you know, and to be able to do so many varied things with so many cool people and to like, you know, podcasting came along and you know, it's like a medium that I love. And then I got to make friends as a result of it is, is really wild to me. And it's not lost on me that I have a very fun life. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, and all the stuff you do with Lauren Lapkus is just <laughs> so good. Thank you. I love it. I love it so much. Me too. Um, lastly, before I let you go, tell me about, uh, Varietopia. Yeah. It's, it's a variety show, like a modern variety show. It's not like a throwback thing. It is just, uh, me hosting comedy and music and whatever else, you know, um, it's my favorite thing to do it's a big show with like a big live band it's just a ball i i do I, it's getting me back into doing stand-up again i took like a long hiatus from stand-up but i'm gathering material now through doing the uh the monologues on the variety show and getting to do sketches and songs with immensely talented people and it's really fun i do it every other month in los angeles and then i'm coming to uh, New York, back to the Bell House, my favorite venue in America. In November, I believe it's the 18th and 19th, we're doing a whole weekend of Variatopia. Two shows each night, different shows both nights. And I can't wait. Oh, I can't. I know you were about to ask me to be part of the New York shows, um, but I actually can't those nights. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's too bad, Andy. Uh, we'll, <laughs> I'll figure something out. <laughs> yeah. you, uh, how do you replace the irreplaceable? Exactly. <laughs> just a moment of silence, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that actually would probably work. <laughs> Bathroom break for the audience. <laughs> Paul, thank you so, so much for coming on. I, it was great having you, great talking to you. And uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful that you were willing to, to do this for little old me. Oh man, literally anytime, Andy. This was, this was a blast. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. <laughs> or. I prefer. Don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. 
Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. And now we have Andy Campbell, journalist at the Huffington Post and author of the amazing new book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Hey, Andy, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. So I want to start with the most sort of basic question possible, because I do think a lot of folks these days are unfortunately now aware of the Proud Boys, but I, I think maybe they're unclear as to exactly what they are. And in your book, you have a quote, you call them one of the most dangerous and influential extremist groups in America. So why do you say that? Yeah, I mean, they've kind of transformed over the years. You know, they started out as this street gang that was acting uh, based off of Trump and and Fox News's rhetoric. They, you know, they wanted to go out in the street and fight for GOP causes. And over the years, they've grown to sidle up to the top levels of the GOP. They have friends within the media and in law enforcement. And so they've become more of a political monster over the years. So now, Instead of just going out to fight, they are also making inroads with the GOP. So I call them, you know, the TLDR version is that they are a a far right street gang hell bent on political violence for GOP causes. Okay, so the Proud Boys were formed by Gavin McGinnis, who unfortunately I'm all too familiar with. But he famously and he said this for years, even before he formed the Proud Boys. He would call himself a Western chauvinist. And the Proud Boys oath is, I am a Western chauvinist and I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world. So what's the interpretation of that that we're looking for here? Yeah, the baseline here is strict nationalism. But Gavin McGinnis ties the nationalism that they have in, in, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek bow. He, he makes everything he says it has a little snarky attitude behind it. Right. But the, I think the thing that people overlook, partly to do with the fact that they have members of color, is that this is white supremacist in nature, too. He also said that anyone can join the gang as long as they agree and accept that a Western chauvinist is essentially a white man and that uh, white men have an 
overwhelming role in the success of Western culture. So as long as they accept that, they can join up. And I, and I think that gets missed a lot, that, that the, the roots here are nationalist and racist. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, I agree with you. I think it's really important to keep hammering at that because it does get sort of overlooked a lot. I was reading through your book and there was a quote in the intro. Uh, it's a, a little long, but I, I need, I'm going to read it because I think it's important. You write, these were the types of bizarre alliances that formed in Trump's early days, back when it felt unusual to see far-right gangs in makeshift body armor, internet Nazis, and your conservative aunt all hanging out in the park together at a political rally. By the end of Trump's term, that image was completely unremarkable. So when I was reading your book, I literally stopped after I read that because it is so true and so unbelievable and so important. We're talking about something that was basically unthinkable six, seven years ago. And now, if you'll pardon me, it's the new abnormal. How did all of this become normalized so quickly? And what role did the Proud Boys play in that? Did they play an outsized role in that? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the playbook that they show here is how to go from, you know, just a hate group that was at Unite the Right to a political force. And so while they've they've gone on this six-year parade of violence through the country, Daily Beast has done a really good job covering it. You know, there are a number of us who have been following them from the beginning. But while they were on this parade of violence, they are also building this these relationships in the GOP and positioning themselves as Trump's de facto enforcement arm. They wanted to do what crusty old white Republicans won't do and get out in the street and fight. And the GOP, especially Trumpian GOP, was ready to embrace that because Trump loves having people in the street for him, especially if they're fighting for him, right? So Trump's circle is embracing what they are doing in the street, either tacitly by not rebuffing them or fully endorsing them. I mean, after January 6th, Ann Coulter writes a blog titled, Thank God for the Proud Boys. And she sort of salivates over them as, as her defenders against the Antifa threat. But what was happening here is that they were normalizing political violence for everyday Americans to the point where you're going to go to any political event this election, next election, you're going to see guys in body armor, in fatigues, you know, makeshift weaponry. And that's going to be totally normal because a huge swath of Americans see this as a justified option in political discourse today. And the Proud Boys had a big part of that. Um, and Enrique Tario told me that after, you know, Unite the Right, he looked at the other sort of hate groups dissolving and he was like, we need to get more political or we're going to be going down with them. You say that in the book, you say that after Charlottesville, after Unite the Right, a lot of the far right groups or a good number of them anyway, sort of disappeared and either dissolved or went silent. But the opposite has been true for the Proud Boys. They have only grown. And I had written like a really long-winded question about this. And then I realized it all boiled down to why? How did we get to the point where we now had the president of the United States during a presidential debate saying, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. And I, I know what you mean about the uh, the GOP, like sort of loving this sort of thing. But what was the actual connection that allowed the Proud Boys? It, it was, is it like, is it a Roger Stone thing? Was he the nexus or was there something else or was there nothing specific? Roger Stone was a huge part of it. I mean, he has been friends with Enrique Tarrio since, you know, back in at least 20 
2017. Um, and he admitted to me in an interview that he had been advising the Proud Boys politically as Enrique Tarrio pushes them uh, uh, to become more political, run for office, throw their weight behind uh, GOP officials who share their ideology. But I honestly think that it is an entire machine that sort of normalizes this. You have the GOP embracing the Proud Boys. You have far-right media not only celebrating them, but continuously blaming Antifa. I mean, Tucker Carlson still maintains that Antifa did January 6th, right? Right. Right. And and so you have this whole machine supporting it, and that ends up translating to everyday Americans also supporting it. Not only are everyday Americans the ones who have been donating to their GoFundMes whenever they go to jail or the January 6th defendants GoFundMes. I was talking to a reporter. He told me about his time in D.C. right before January 6th, and he said he could see the shift from just Trump rhetoric, just Fox News rhetoric to everyday people when he got punched in the face by a proud boy in December before January 6th. And he looked out into the crowd of just regular MAGA folks and a woman who he said could have been his mom turns to him and says, you deserve that. And he was like, that's when I knew that Trump, you know, pointing at the back of the rafters and saying the media is your enemy that had translated to people believing it. And going forward, that's the fear is whether we now accept this as the normal. Yeah, it's shocking how uh, violent rhetoric turns into actual violence. Who would expect that? Yeah, and 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 the pipeline is is shorter and shorter. I mean, right. I remember Trump rhetoric leading to bombs showing up at Democratic officials, and and now you have Trump railing against the FBI for going through uh, his stuff at Mar-a-Lago, and within what was it a day, a guy showed up to an FBI office and tried to yeah. shoot it up. Yep. I mean, it is a short pipeline now. Let's talk about, you brought up January 6th, so let me ask you this. How much of what we saw that day was Proud Boys related? Just scratching the surface of sort of the, what they contributed to, not just the perpetration of that day's events, but also the organization? Certainly, when Trump said, stand back, stand by, they took it as marching orders. They start raising money, gathering equipment, and getting ready for what they called their last stand for Trump. I think it was Joe Biggs who published a blog called This is Civil War. So, So they were gearing up. I was even surprised to learn that, you know, certainly the Proud Boys had an outsized role in the execution of the insurrection. There may have been a hundred there. But when the Justice Department brought down sedition charges, they showed us the 1776 returns document, which was a plan in Tario's hands December 30th, before January 6th, to occupy different buildings in D.C. And that was the first time that we really had concrete evidence that there was a plan in place prior to January 6th. Before that, Republicans were saying, well, it was just a random swell of violence or it was Antifa. Now we know there's a plan and that Enrique Tarrio had it. And so going into these sedition trials, it's going to be so interesting to see not only how much did they plan it, maybe it'll illuminate their relationship with people like Roger Stone, but also Proud Boys are testifying against each other. That's going to be super interesting. Yeah. Several have agreed to roll over on the other Proud Boys to lessen their charges. And we may learn a lot. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So you've mentioned Enrico Tario a bunch of times. I just want to clarify that he, well, he was the leader of the Proud Boys around the January 6th stuff. He's now in prison, correct? Right. But 
people still take cues from the guy and right. he's he is in, in jail awaiting his sedition trial. Has anyone rebuffed him? Is he still the chairman? You know, not much has changed, I don't think. And, you know, the gang is still working as directed without him there. It remains to be seen whether, and this always happens with big Proud Boys events. A bunch of their leaders go to jail. The gang keeps working as directed. So it remains to be seen how much his jail time will actually affect the overall group. Yeah, absolutely. And and along those same lines, so Gavin McInnes, who, who formed the Proud Boys, he sort of famously resigned from them in 2018. Does anyone believe, do you believe that that was the end of his association with them? Because that seems unlikely to me. No. Absolutely not. And and in fact, he said in that very speech where he said he was resigning, he said, I'm only doing this to somehow alleviate the charges of the guys who were arrested in that assault in Manhattan. And we've seen, even after January 6th, him wearing Proud Boys colors on his show, right. raising money for them, advising them. I don't think he's gone. He has too big of an ego to be totally gone. And we're going to learn a lot about that during this edition trial, too, because it's uh, somebody reported recently that uh, he's going to be a character witness for Enrique and the gang. So I'm surprised <laughs> that he has never faced any consequences for this thing he's unleashed on the world, but he may implicate himself further going forward. He is. He's always one of those people that sort of skates from consequences. And is that because, like you said, he sort of, he does everything with that that sort of very 21st century layer of irony where he can sort of claim afterwards, oh, I w- I'm just a provocateur, you know, that the big thing, or I, w- I was joking. Is that what enables him to skate from all this stuff? Because if you look at all the things that he said... I mean, he outright has called for violence. He's talked about, you know, if, if you see a someone anti-MAGA, choke them. And he says stuff like that on the regular. Right. And this goes to show you how scary it is and how hard it is for law enforcement and anyone to respond to these right-wing loudmouths who are fomenting violence everywhere. I mean, the fact that he's been able to call for violence directly and make it a rule that doing a, a big act of violence for the cause is the top rank that you can get in the gang, and and he doesn't face any consequences. This is something that, that a whole bunch of, of popular right-wingers are taking cues from. You know, the libs of TikTok of the world, the Tucker right. Carlson's, you know, the, these people know if they add a thin layer of plausible deniability, they are not going to face any consequences. Because the only reason Gavin, I feel like, hasn't faced any charges is because he's just never out there. He's making orders from his studio in upstate New York. Right. But it is scary going forward that people know that they can do this and totally get away with it. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned his studio, and I guess it was a few weeks ago now, he pulled a stunt where he made it seem like he'd been arrested while he was recording his show. And then it turned out that he'd actually gone on vacation with his family. It seemed like, at least at the time, that pissed off some of his allies. So do you think that has hurt him or is is that the kind of thing that's sort of quickly forgiven and forgotten? I think it's forgiven and forgotten. And I think that the spirit of the Proud Boys is such that they are completely untethered by McGinnis and Tario now. Like I said, they're working on the GOP's grievances now. McGinnis may or may not be barking orders from, you know, a microphone, but the Proud Boys are looking at Tucker Carlson's rhetoric and Trump's rhetoric and activating based off of that. You had all summer Fox News whining and raging about LGBTQ and drag queens and and trans issues. And the Proud Boys were following suit by showing up at children's hospitals and abortion clinics and drag queen story hours. And they're still doing that to this day. So whether or not it hurts McGinnis, I think that the Proud Boys are a machine on their own now. And, And going forward, we can expect to see them at anything Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump point their finger at. 
going forward, like into the future, what would you say is the, again, we've got Tario in prison, McGinnis has, you know, claims he's not involved anymore. You don't see the Proud Boys as being diminished in any way. And I'm curious, you know, we've got an election, uh, midterm elections are coming up in a little over a month. And obviously in 2024, there's another presidential election. Are we going to see Proud Boys? Are they going to be doing shit outside of like voting places and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, you you know, even if the Proud Boys dissolved tomorrow or changed their name and and rebranded, you know, there is such overlap with them and all the other groups. There are neo-Nazis in there, Oath Keepers, QAnon. It's all sort of one big force that's ready to mobilize, right? And we have GOP officials all over the country who are not only aligned with these guys. Joe Kent, in a, a household full in Washington State, donated $11,000 to a Proud Boy for consulting fees. But you, you have officials who are calling for violence and intimidation. Right. Several officials in Arizona have very directly called for vigilantes to go to ballot boxes and watch them. I mean, this is... It's always going to be Proud Boys. They're always going to be in orbit. But we have a whole gamut of extremists and everyday Americans ready to mobilize based on that stuff. It's not a secret anymore. It's not a there's no distance between the rhetoric and the violence like we were talking about. So, yes, I'm I'm very worried about our future of political violence. And again, I'm worried about how much this has spilled into everyday life, not just MAGA rallies, not just BLM rallies. This is every facet of American civic life is affected by this now. Do you see a path for us to sort of, I guess the only way I can put this is to unfuck ourselves or are we <laughs> are we just sort of stuck with this and hope that it burns out on its own maybe? Because I, I don't know what to do, you know? The communities that I spoke to, you know, that have been affected by these guys want a full culture shift because we have to get to a point where law enforcement doesn't allow far-right extremists extremists in their ranks and have a system set up to push them out. Same with the military, same with politicians. And and so you're right. I mean, it is a hugely uphill battle because of how normalized it is. And really the people doing the most work right now are the activists and researchers putting together dossiers on all these guys. I mean, activists and researchers are the ones who put all the dossiers together on 700 January 6th defendants, right? So I think there's some hope there, but you know, I, I also think it's a hugely uphill battle. You know, the Klan didn't lose power because people rebuffed them. The Klan lost power because the whole country shared, or enough of the country shared that ideology that it was, they were unneeded as a force, right? Right. And so you have to worry that this is where we're headed with with our new era of extremism. Well, okay, let's end on that uplifting note. Uh, (laughs) Andy Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. The book is We Are Proud Boys. It's a fantastic read and a really important read, I think. So everyone, please go out and buy it. And don't just buy it, read it. Andy, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. What a great conversation. Thanks for having it. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.